First reading is from Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar. I will set it out. I will break off a tender one from the topmost of his young twigs. I myself will plant it in a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it in order that it may produce boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar. Under it, every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will accomplish it. The word of the Lord. The kingdom of God, our Lord says, is like a mustard seed. It's small, insignificant, easy to miss, but plant it in the ground and it will grow and grow and grow until it becomes the mightiest shrub. Well, that's not what I was expecting, because I've seen shrubs, and I've seen trees, and I know which one I would rather climb. And I think, Jesus, why not go with the cedars of Lebanon? That's what Ezekiel did. It worked for him. Everyone loves Ezekiel. Who doesn't love Ezekiel? Who doesn't love cedars? Those cedars, now there, 
There's a mighty plant. Their tempers supplied the navies of the ancient world, the railroads of the Ottoman Empire. They provided the lumber for the very temple in Jerusalem itself. The mighty and majestic cedars of Lebanon, any bird would be lucky to build a nest in their branches. Now there is something mighty. But our Lord Christ goes for the mighty mustard shrub. Mustard is an odd plant. Any southerner can tell you that you can eat the greens. You can feed it to animals. You can compost the plant as a fertilizer. But it also grows quickly and spreads easily like a weed. The seed can hide in the soil for years before sprouting up. You might easily buy a parcel of land and wake up one day surprised to find that mustard has overgrown your crop, that suddenly your carefully cultivated garden isn't so carefully cultivated anymore. And once it's taken root, it's difficult to get rid of. Writing in the late first century, the Roman author Pliny the Elder notes of mustard, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it. New Testament scholar Michael Bird says, whether wild or cultivated, the mustard tree becomes a malignant weed. So if I may translate this parable into Southern, the kingdom of God is like kudzu. Not much larger than a mustard seed, yet when it grows, it becomes the greatest of vines and puts forth many tendrils until the whole countryside is green. Compared with Jesus' parables, it's much easier to understand Ezekiel's point, that God is planting a sprig from a majestic cedar, which will grow into something great and mighty. Oh, to be a cedar, towering above the forest, to stand for generations, to be the subject of sacred myth and poetry. You might walk past the same cedar that your child and your grandchild will walk past, and the same cedar that your father and your grandmother walked past. But no, Jesus goes with, of all things, a shrub. From a human point of view, it's foolishness to compare the kingdom, that glorious treasure, that pearl of great price, to a wild-growing, uncontrollable, undesirable shrub. The kingdom is like mustard. It's like kudzu. It infests more than it grows. But nothing is ever what it seems in the parables or in the kingdom. Let's consider Ezekiel more closely. I bring low the high tree. I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree 
flourish. Ezekiel spoke these words as Babylon was cutting a path of destruction towards Judah. As Ezekiel himself was telling people to prepare for destruction and exile, saying, don't bother repenting because you're going to get carted away as a prisoner. As he's saying that, there comes a promise that they shall, in the Lord's own time, stand tall like cedars. Regarded from a human perspective, this is utter foolishness. You can hear those more prone to worry scoffing under their voice that this is a false hope in a time of crisis. You can hear people laughing as though the tiny kingdom of Judah could withstand the onslaught of the mighty Babylonian Empire. The entire story of Israel, though, is one of a people who are, from a human perspective, from a human point of view, unworthy. Consider the people the Lord has chosen. A cowardly, adulterous, childless, old shepherd named Abram, and his postmenopausal wife, Sarai. These are the people who are supposed to beget a great family as a blessing to the world? A liar with no inheritance named Jacob, who betrays his family and runs away and is then swindled by his uncle. He's supposed to be a great patriarch? A people with no homeland living enslaved in Egypt. They're God's chosen ones. They are the recipients of the Lord's favor. A young woman named Mary, betrothed to a working-class man in a far-flung province of an oppressive empire. She's the one who's supposed to give birth to the king of kings. An impulsive fisherman named Simon, he's going to be the rock of the church. A treasonous street preacher, beaten and nailed to a cross. That's the fulfillment of God's covenant. That's the savior of the world, the one who can be crucified. Dear ones, the story of our redemption is the story of shrubs and dried, dead, old wood. From our point of view, there's nothing worth saving and nothing that we can save. But it's not about us, is it? Not about our abilities. It's not about our potential. It's not about what we value or what we are able to redeem. It's not what we can save. The things we look down upon and reject, the mustard seeds and kudzu vines, these are the people that God favors. New life can come from dry wood, and shrubs can grow mighty, and not even death is the end of the story. There is new creation erupting forth from God in this world. Hallelujah. Let us pray that it may come. But maybe, just maybe we should be careful what we wish for. Verse 
Maybe when we pray, thy kingdom come, we'd really rather not wake up to a bunch of wild mustard plants invading our carefully cultivated garden. Maybe we'd rather not wake up to kudzu vines devouring entire hillsides just across the street from our house. We'd rather keep our lofty cedars, our live oaks, our magnolia trees, our rose bushes. We'd rather keep that dilapidated building than face the vines that will crush it. We'd rather have all of that than have our trees shot down and replaced with some noxious weed. Maybe we're worried that revival might bring the wrong type of person into our pews. The kingdom of God really is like a mustard seed. Dead in the earth, it sprouts up and grows uncontrollably. And before you know it, it's bursting forth everywhere. It's ruining our best laid plans. It pops up in places we don't expect it. It pops up where we don't really want it. Driving us to love people who, from a human point of view, are of no account. Suddenly, that mustard seed is bringing forth new life, spreading its branches and tendrils wide, overrunning our neatly ordered lives. This coming kingdom is wild. It's beyond our control. We can't prune it back, no matter how much we try. It can't be contained to one small patch of garden or weeded out. There's no limiting it to Sunday mornings for an hour. It may very well look like an item of little worth, possibly even something to be avoided to the outsider. We can try to tame. We can try to make it fit into a specific economic, political, or cultural message. We can try to make it work to our ends. But the kingdom will overwhelm our every intention. The kingdom means that we're going to get up close and personal with the people we would rather ignore. It means we're going to get up close and personal to the strangers, the foreigners, the people who don't look like us, the people that we consider enemies. What's worse, it's going to require that we not only get up close and personal with them, but that we come to love them as family members. Before we know it, the emigrant, the prisoner, the beggar on the street corner is no longer a nuisance or a threat. No, suddenly these people are beloved children of God. Suddenly we realize that they are our siblings in Christ. Suddenly we realize that they are an opportunity to serve the Lord in the least of these and to be blessed by their presence. So maybe instead of an invitation to the sacraments, we should sound some warnings. When a family brings a young child to be baptized, or when someone comes to renew their baptismal vows, we should say, caution, here is God's grace. Here is the free gift of salvation. It will ruin your good reputation. It will cost your life. Here, in this font, people drown. Enter these waters at your own risk. 
warning. This meal will change everything. You will be consumed by that which you consume, and you are what you eat. Dear ones, the old things are passing away. Our pride, our greed, our fear, all of our sinful ways are being overgrown by God's kingdom. God's grace is sending outgoing shoots of new life into this tired old world, working even within us to make us new and to open our eyes to the new creation, sending us out to live for Christ and through Christ to live for our neighbors. May our Heavenly Father, who has sown with seed among us, bring us to fruition. May Christ enter into our hearts, bringing us to new life like dried wood made green. May the Spirit drive us out into the world to sprout up wildly, unpredictably, like mustard shrubs and kudzu. Amen.